what makes a strong church. And we start thinking about strength and we start thinking about how you and I might evaluate our system of appraisal is entirely different from the Lord. If you'll remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16, as Saul was passing by the sons of Jesse trying to choose which one would be denoted by God as being the next king, we learned that God or the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. Wow, that's a real eye-opener that you and I often look and what we see superficially is the way we judge. Or you can go to Luke 16 and verse 15. And there we learn, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You see, sometimes men will place people up here and assist um, a level of uh, strength when in reality that's not where God would place them. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, Coming to him or to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Men rejected Jesus, but he was chosen by God. He was precious with God. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, he talked about people who would glory, their own self-appreciation. And he would say, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 26, going through verse 31, he talks about not many mighty not many wise, not many noble are called. It's not the sense that God doesn't want them, but the fact is that the worldly people look at what God has put for and say, that's foolishness. And you and I have to realize that as we start trying to answer the question, what would you say makes a great church? Well, I would say many of us would say, they got a lot of people, a large number. You know, each week we post on the boards to my right and to my left uh, the number of people who attend each service. I think that's good. I think it's the fact that if we look at that and say these represent souls of people seeking God, then that's good. On the other hand, if we say, but the larger the number we have, the stronger we are spiritually, then that's wrong. In Judges chapter 7 and verse 2, as Gideon was sent to destroy the Amalekites, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You know, sometimes we have this idea that if we just have enough members who could work hard enough that we could do everything, we can't. Sometimes we look at the next item on the board. How much do we contribute? Quite frequently, it's been my privilege to visit sister congregations. And sometimes I'm amazed that you'll find a congregation of 200, 220 people, and their contribution per week is about $15,000, $16,000. They're givers. 
And sometimes we look and we see congregations that have been able to build beautiful buildings to alter or to uh, put before people how much they love the Lord. But you see, you have to be careful with that because you can develop a mindset that according to Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You see, our wealth sometimes can be uh, deceiving and making us think that things are all well when they are not. Then the third thing that might influence us is fame. Either famous members or famous in the sense of a congregational reputation. When I think about famous members, I remember a few years ago someone sent me a link to a Wikipedia article. Famous celebrities who are a member of the Churches of Christ. I remember being amazed at that list. Uh, some of the people's names on there, like uh, uh, lost the name of the guy who's uh, you know, a person who tries to imitate others, uh, sings all these songs. But, uh, you know, I'm amazed that these people are celebrities. Or maybe the church itself has become almost like a celebrity. Listen to Galatians 2, verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God shows no personal favoritism to man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. You notice how he says, seem to be something? doesn't matter to God. God doesn't look at and say, oh, this celebrity over here, he is really impressive. But this poor little uh, elderly gentleman who's read his Bible every day, he's nothing. Oh, that's not the way God looks at it. Revelation 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And say, well, you're not making me feel too good. Perhaps our methods of evaluating a strong church need to be evaluated a little differently. Now, I'm gonna, I can imagine me preaching this sermon 33 years ago this month. Somebody looking on the screen and seeing eight points and say, boy, that'll... And I can already see the panic on the side of some of you. Man, will he ever cover eight points in one lesson? These are very brief points. But you start thinking about what makes a strong church. And the first thing is that we are converted. That is to be changed. Matthew 18 and verse 3, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It was in Matthew, or Acts chapter 3 and verse 19 that he would said, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Sometimes people have never really been converted and committed to the Lord. Here's a person who says, Well, I, I guess I want to be baptized, but then they don't show up at church next week. Were they really converted? Was there a real change in who they are? Were they, to use the biblical term, born again? Paul would say in Galatians 2 and verse 20, 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a person who seeks first the kingdom of God. And some people... When you start looking at a congregation that is strong, you have to have a whole group of people whose heart and their soul and their mind is committed to serving God. And we recognize that a people can be that way and lose it. Revelation 2 and verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. The second of all is a working membership. This is a group of people who have faith and they have works. And the Bible is quite plain about that. Too often people will look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved and that of faith, not of your works, lest any man should boast. And you get to verse 10 and he said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God expects his church to do good works. In James 1, verses 22 through 25, he said, Be doers and not hearers only. And then he describes a man who sees his face in a mirror and he walks away and he forgets what he was. He doesn't make any changes. He doesn't do anything. Faith and works have to go together. And in verse 22, Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, his faith was made perfect. How do you know a congregation is strong? We can sing about it. We can talk about it. But God expects us to do something about it to be strong. Strong churches will be involved in good works. Titus 2 verse 14. He said that he might purify for himself his own special people. Zealous for good works. Looking for opportunities to do good things to our neighbors and our friends. Titus 3 and verse 14, And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. If we're going to be a strong congregation, we're going to have to be people looking out in our community and in our world and say, what can we do to serve as Jesus served man? Hebrews 10, 24, what we're doing tonight, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Number three is a praying membership. You've often heard the phrase, the family that prays together stays together. Well, what about the spiritual family? What about us as a body of brothers and sisters In this family that meets here, do we pray? We ought to be praying for one another's spiritual healing. James 5, 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Some of us are sometimes struggling with sin in our lives. We're struggling with challenges and temptations. We ought to be praying for each other in doing so. We also be praying for those who are 
preaching and teaching the gospel. Sometimes groups of our members go on campaigns to Peru, to Costa Rica, to Guyana, to other nations to preach the gospel. Brother Shane Fisher is in India right now preaching the gospel. Finally, my brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Pray so that the gospel will go into places where it has not been. And yes, there's times when the church will be persecuted. Sometimes when someone may be incarcerated for their faith. In Acts 12, Peter had been thrown in prison. And we read in Acts 12 and verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God by him, for him by the church. You realize that the church was praying there, God provides some means so that Peter can come back and be with us. Colossians 4 verse 2, continuing earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Next is a sacrificing membership. Sacrifice means giving something up. You know, you're sitting there and there's a, a plate of chicken and everybody's had something to eat. And there's that last piece of chicken on the plate. And you're thinking about taking your fork, reaching over there and getting it. But your son or your daughter says, oh, I'd like to have that. You know what you do? You draw your fork back and you let them have it. You sacrifice, you give up something. Jesus exemplified more than just a, a minor sacrifice. John 15 and verse 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. Ephesians 5 and verse 2 says it was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Likewise, Paul did the same. Philippians 2 verse 17, he said, I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Paul would sacrifice himself for whomever it was necessary to see they learn the truth and be able to go to heaven. And when you think about sacrificing congregations, I think about the Macedonians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul's raising money for those needy saints in Jerusalem, and he's going around and he's, we would say, hitting up. He's asking congregations that certainly have the ability, like at Corinth. Paul reflects upon the Macedonians and says in verse 2, that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded into the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. When you say it's beyond their ability, we're not talking about people who give from the overflow. We're talking about people who give till it hurts. They do without something so that others may have. Next is a united membership. Sometimes we don't appreciate how important it is for the church here at Bybee Branch to stand together as one person before this community and before God. 
When you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, he says two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though that one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You can go after one of us, but if we all stand together, then they can't overcome us. Think about how we stand together, pulling one another up, keeping one another up in times of difficulty. That's what Jesus prayed for. In his prayer in John 17, prior to his crucifixion, rather than focusing solely upon himself, here's what he does. He prays for his apostles and then he prays for those that the apostles are going to reach. He says, I do not pray for these alone, that's the apostles, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. That they all may be one in you, Father, as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Our standing united says to the world that we support one another. To be strong, we have to stand together. There was a time in our country, now close to 150 years ago, when our country was being ripped apart. Abraham Lincoln quoted Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. The same is true for churches. If we are divided, if we work against one another, if we undermine one another, then the Lord's church will not stand in this location. You see, we've got to be united together. But now the next is a separated people. And I know you might say, well, united? And now you're saying separated? But it depends upon whom you are united to and whom you are separated from. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he speaks about the church as the called out people. He said, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Notice we were in darkness, but God says, I want you to come out. I want you to be my people. As a result, we are distinct from the ways of the world. In writing the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he recognized what was going on in Corinth. You have people who were Christians who were participating in pagan rituals. In other words, they were trying to live like the world. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has a temple of God with idols. And if you will notice verse 17, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. 
And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. What I want you to do is to come out of the world, be distinct, be separate from them, don't act like them, don't do the things they do. How can the church be strong when it looks no different from the world? If we talk like the church, the world talks, if we live like the world lives, and they look at us and they see no difference whatsoever, we can't make an impact. We are being weakened by our association with the world and our participation with the world. Number seven, a youth-minded membership. It's funny, I was 20-something years old when I preached this lesson. And you think, well, that's been a long time ago. And even then, I wrote in my notes, some feel there's too much emphasis on youth. They feel like that you, you somehow can become obsessed with worrying and concerning yourself. And those people that I was speaking to 33 years ago are speaking about, you've got kids now. Some of you may have grandkids. We have all been young. Whether you're young now or whether you're old now, you've been young. David would say in Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I'm old. You've been there. You know the temptations that young people face. You know the energy that young people have. You know the potential that they have within them. It is an extremely impressionable time of life. And it needs the attention of the church. Children are just like concrete. When you pour concrete, it's very malleable. You can shape it. You can form it. But when it's set, it becomes that pattern for life. Youth is a time in which the child can be set. Solomon expressed it like this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now your creator. In the days of your youth, before the difficult days come or the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. We have an opportunity right now to be stewards of our children. We talk about being stewards of our money. That's important. We talk about being stewards of those things that have been placed under our charge. What greater gift does a person have than his children that will live on after him. We can either develop or we can ignore the youth. If we ignore them, we are doing damage to a generation to come. In Proverbs 22, verse 6, Solomon writes, Train up a child the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That's not only a parental obligation, but that becomes a congregational obligation. If we're to train, that becomes a a training that takes place in our classes. It takes place as we gather together. We learn in Proverbs 13, verse 20, walk with those who are wise or walk with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. We need to be pulling young people in, placing the values of God within them, allowing them to grow up and then do that all over again for another generation to come. Number eight, 
a mission-minded membership. The Lord gave the church a mission. He stated it very simply to the apostles in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. The Lord said to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. That's the message you carry. You go into all the world. You teach people God's message. You baptize them. That's so the Lord can add them to his body, the church. And the church is to support the preaching of the gospel. Whether a person is preaching in Southeast Asia, whether they are preaching in Africa, or whether they're preaching in one of the islands, or whether they're preaching in the United States. We as the church have that obligation to do that. We've got to think mentally in our minds, we're not here just to make us feel good. We are here to do what we can to spread God's message. Philippians 1, 3 through 5, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with joy for your fellowship in the furtherance of the gospel from the first day until now. You participated wherever I went. You helped support me preaching that message. What a great thought that is. That we keep in our minds that the importance of us as a church is to spread the gospel, to preach and teach to our neighbors. And here is the challenge. If we aren't serious about it, we're going to answer for it. Because we know what the message of the gospel is. If a man dies lost, he will spend an eternity in hell. Either we believe that or we don't believe it. If you don't believe it, we need to have some more Bible studies. But if you believe it, then you say, now I'm obligated for that man. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18 and verse 20, When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from the wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. I don't want to stand before God on the day of judgment and listen to God say, you know what, you weren't interested in carrying the gospel to that lost man or that lost woman. Verse 20, and again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. You see, the truth is, is that I stand here tonight, I am standing under obligation by God to tell you the truth, that if you're living in sin and you don't repent, you're going to be lost. If I didn't tell you that, God would look at me and say, you didn't tell them, you didn't warn them. It's like the song we sing, you never mentioned him to me. You see, for us to be a strong church, we have to be a mission-minded church. We can be a strong church in God's eyes. To be a strong church, we have to be what God wants us to be. It's not the rich. It's not the numerous. It's not the, the celebrities. It's the faithful that God is looking. But to be a strong church, we have to be strong members. You've often heard the phrase, a chain is no stronger than its weakest link. 
Am I the weak link? Am I the part that's not doing my job before God? If you are subject to the Lord's invitation, we're going to sing the song 368. Jesus paid it all. You need to become a Christian or you need to return to faithfulness. Please come while we stand and sing.